Hey, welcome to the 152nd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode was brought to you by patrons Charles Coleman and Kevin O'Brien. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and on this episode we have Carrie Gilogli. She is a creative development exec. Yeah, she's a veep. She's a VP of, uh, of development over at AMC. The um, network that brought you such amazing shows as Breaking Bad and Mad Men. And a whole bunch of other great ones. I've known Carrie for a long time. We're pals from college. And so we get to talk a lot about the nature of development. We haven't really gotten into the day-to-day of what they actually do, and more specifically and importantly and pertinently to you, listener, uh, what they're looking for and how they find the people that they love working with. Yeah, we dive into both how they find writers and new shows and also how they find directors for pilots and for series. But just before we get into that conversation, real quick, I think we should just define what a development person does. Her job is to find shows get them on the air and also to continue with existing shows yeah shepherding them through kind of the whole process you know like they're working with the showrunner the creators the writers you know they're not necessarily in the trenches but they are the liaison between the rest of the tv side of the whole equation they're the people that get shows made yeah advocate for shows and the thing that i love the most about carrie is that more than maybe any other executive i know carrie loves writers she loves working with writers she loves finding them and empowering them and that has always been her dream and she's living it i've known carrie since we were teenagers and she's like day one she was like i'm gonna be a producer so here we are cool what did you say i said i'm gonna be a podcaster you're like uh (laughs) I'm going to a frat party. I did not go to a frat party. (laughs) Jeez Louise. I'm trying to paint a picture of you that's totally fake on this episode. (laughs) Just because you're with a college friend. I think we'll skip our catch up even though I have some great things to talk about. Ooh, I can't wait to talk to you about it next week. (laughs) (laughs) But before we talk to Carrie, I want to remind people about our Patreon. It's actually been going pretty well. Super great. Yeah, we've seen a lot of steady growth. It's the thing that helps us pay Jay, our editor, and keep our live shows alive and happening. We've been making a lot of small adjustments to the show. Like, we're doing more remote episodes. We're investing in the gear a little bit more. So that's all thanks to the help and support of you, the listeners, providing us with a little bit of patronage. So, you know, if you think it's worthwhile to throw us a buck or two once a month, Patreon is a great way to show your support and... And honestly, most of it goes directly to Jay. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we are going to have another live event very soon. Very soon. I would love to go to a few film festivals. Oh, yeah. Right? Like other places where uh, people who listen to the show could meet with other listeners, basically. Hey, how about this? If you are involved in a film festival and you have a cool panel on directing and you think we should be there, <laughs> let us know. Our yep. email is justshootitpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Without further ado, let's talk to Carrie Gologly from AMC. Carrie. Carrie Gologly. Yeah. On the mic. Woo! So you work in development. I do. You're our first development guest. Carrie, you're kicking off development month. You're Great. initiating it. You are at AMC. Yes. You've been there for kind of a while now, right? Almost seven years. Whoa. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. It'll be seven years in July. So when you started... Breaking Bad was still going. It was yeah. kind of like the dawn Mad of Men. new AMC, basically. Yeah, yeah. Breaking Bad and Mad. Yeah, Men. no. Well, Breaking Bad was like ending. It oh, probably Walking had Dead. like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Breaking Bad was had two seasons left. Mad Men had, or had like one and a half seasons left. Uh, Mad Men had two seasons left. Right. But right. so it was like you know a good run in the midst of a good run. Sure. And so that's a great time to. I remember when you got that job. It was like, oh, it's a very cool place to work. 
Um, like people are very excited about it and everyone is looking for what the next thing is basically. Yeah. I mean, I think television is, I mean, this was me switching from features to television sure, to work that's at true. AMC. Yeah. And I think that TV is interesting because you in a lot of ways are looking for something that's unique. Whereas like a lot of on the feature side, you're looking for something with pre-awareness that's mm-hmm. sort of familiar. Mm-hmm. And that's less true now than it was many so. years ago. I think, oh, I think that the, in my time in the television business, the television business has basically become features mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So, Do you mean in that they also require pre-awareness? In some cases. I mean, I think a brand is meaningful. I think movie stars are meaningful. I think a big idea is meaningful in a way that that used to not be the the case as much mm-hmm. i mean it's there it, that's not i mean that's not a it's not religion you sure. know it doesn't have to be that way but it is happening more and more because of the sort of arms race that's everything yeah the that's like that, yeah, yeah yeah just like just like to make as get as many eyeballs and make as many things as you can i'm gonna pump the brakes immediately like Great. really early on you said the term big idea people hear big idea all the time what do you mean by big idea uh i mean i think a big idea it can mean a lot of different things. I think that what I meant it, I meant it in a bit of a pejorative way when I was just <laughs> saying it, but that it doesn't have to be. I mean, I think that like high concept mm-hmm. is maybe like, I think that a hook, like something that feels like, I think a big idea could mean to somebody a big concept, like it's an operatic space battle, you know, different worlds against each other and all mm-hmm. of that. Or it could mean a big idea through like a keyhole perspective, like something like signs mm-hmm. or maybe a big idea that's lo-fi like uh primer that uh Shane sure. Carruth. Carruth yeah. yeah. Um, but so, so when you say lo-fi, you mean that it's ex- the execution is kind of lo-fi. Yeah. Well, I mean the budget was super low and, and the concept it was, it's time travel, but it's, guys that literally to time travel they're like in a garage like locked away for four hours and then they wake up and it's a week ago right. but so is like ex machina or machina, machina however you pronounce it is that a what, big idea because to me that's like almost like a small idea executed in a hi-fi way people use that term to mean a lot of different things right. i think it could also just mean like you hear it and you just have never heard anything like it before it feels mm-hmm. like like groundhog day is a big idea in some ways sure yeah you know like because yeah. that's like a but that, some, they totally ripped off happy death day if you've seen that movie oh yeah that's right yeah i mean that's the original the original I mean, bill murray saw it and he was like <laughs> he's like get, yeah. get me my time machine back to 1990 well he called shane Carruth. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just in turn he sat in a refrigerator box yeah. for <laughs> three years that <laughs> came out in 1991. I am realizing that development is its own ecosystem in a lot of ways in that you talk about story and filmmaking in general nonstop all day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in kind of an insular situation where you end up with a lot of jargon, I guess is what I'm saying. Do you know what I mean? So like I can, I can remember times where I've been in meetings having been in development and been like, big idea... I think I know what you mean by that, but like, who knows? The big idea is probably a a more transparent term than I'm thinking of, but like you said keyhole earlier. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Things like that. Like, so I feel like a lot of the show. We're talking about scope. Scope, noisy. There's just, you know, there's stuff, right? I feel like, I mean, it might not be as popular now, but I feel like people used to always ask like what the engine was Mm -hmm. for like a series. That's still... I mean, that's still a common. More word. people should ask that about the shows that they make. Ooh, I say that. 
a little a little burn there, a little shade. Oh yeah, shade on <laughs> on everybody. Can I tell you? I I was trying to find the name of the person we pitched to when I pitched this show a couple of years ago. We pitched to this company. The woman whose company it was was allegedly at AMC, and she's the one that like found Breaking Bad and Mad Men. I forget her name. Mm-hmm. That's what I was like trying to find. But when we pitched our show, which was kind of this like sci-fi mystery thriller show it's like a very similar show to uh manifest that's on tv right now yeah and i mean there was like a hundred shows that came out that like when we were pitching it those were kind of like exactly our show but uh, the feedback that we got from the development person there that we pitched to was that there's like that our show felt like a network show because there were like all these characters and all these storylines and they think of a cable show as one that really focuses on like one character in the pilot and slowly unfolds into like the world, not, not the world, but that the rest of the characters kind of come off of like one person's point of view, as opposed to like showing you like multiple points of view right in the beginning, which I thought was like an interesting, that's pretty accurate, an interesting way to think about cable versus network. Well, I think it's, again, it's less true now because I think the more (laughs) streaming services that there are out there and sort of like the less, form focused uh development is because Mm -hmm. it's like you get shows that are they're just they just happen to be episodic and they have but their concept is so big they don't need to follow any rules and i think that it's a whole you know a whole other podcast we could have about whether or not they should follow some rules Mm -hmm. and is it really working when you you know that they you know when they don't follow certain conventions of of uh, uh long form uh, series writing. Right. You're saying basically that the difference between traditional television, something that comes out weekly versus something that's intended to binge, and then also doesn't have to worry about the constraints of broadcast being like a certain runtime, things like that, all of a sudden that changes the storytelling as well. Is what you're Part getting. of it is that, I mean, but I think something like Ozark or whatever, that could easily be on any cable network Mm -hmm. it just happens to be on netflix and that is a more of a traditional television story it can go on for a long time it is one single character it starts with him and it kind of opens up um and that is more of a i think that's definitely something that amc does or covets in some whatever way like they look for that again back to like streaming services and there's there's maybe more of a um value put on high concept Mm. um i think that those rules don't apply as much to everyone anymore that said if you brought me a thing with multiple leads the reason why people shy away from that is that a lot of times when you have a lot of different leads you only have a really limited amount of time with each of them Mm -hmm. so inevitably when you tell the story of the character each character it's reduced to five scenes yeah or like a simple like art like you know archetype Mm-hmm. And so you don't really get to know anybody. So you don't really connect with anybody. And it could not be as sophisticated or deep um, as it could be. Or if compelling. You were, yeah, or compelling. Less, less if, good, really. Yeah, if you're, if you're only going to focus on right. one character. So if you took all that real estate and you just dedicated to one guy that, or one girl, then all of a sudden you know somebody in this way that you couldn't if you only – if you were doing like five different characters that all had their own story. And so – and I think when, especially, I mean, to your point, as far as like runtime is concerned, that's a big factor if you have to obey like an hour long format. Right. I guess what I'm saying, like if I'm a listener now and I'm like interested in 
coming, you know, I have a great idea for a TV show and I want to pitch it and stuff. Like if I look at a show like Maniac and say like, oh, well, my show is just like Maniac and they made Maniac. So they'll probably be interested in my show. Yeah. It's like like those shows that break the format and that like the Romanoffs are like you know, these shows that have these oddball like runtimes or or like arcs or whatever. Like they're being made by prestige showrunners. Sure. They're not like someone's. Um, First thing, like the the litmus test on that show on whether you're going to greenlight it or not is not the format. It's sure. the filmmakers. Well, I think that I think that that's, uh, I think that's a very good point that any new person should keep in mind that if they're comparing their show to something that maybe has like a lot of a plus talent in it, I think that you know that they their their material needs to stand on its own because nobody knows who they are yet. You know, right. Just to go back to the engine thing, just I, again, I think we have a lot of listeners that like work in Hollywood, but I think there's some that a lot of stuff is new to them. So I think something I just thought of is like to me, an engine, the engine of the show is kind of like what pushes us from episode to episode, right? It's like what's generating the cliffhangers and what and the seasonal arc and like why we want to kind of tune back in next week, I guess, in the traditional, um, right? And the, and I do think maybe like this is just an observation that's probably totally wrong, but I'm just going to say that it seems like in those kind of premium cable shows, a lot of times that engine comes up at the very end of the pilot and like in a network show, like a network thriller or something, it kind of seems to like come at the very beginning, right? Like you're trying to like capture people and make sure they like come back after the commercial break. I guess you would do that on AMC also. I don't know. I guess I'm just, I'm just trying to think uh, like back on like when you're pitching a show, like what, um, like what people like you are looking for in it to determine whether you think it's a show that people will care about. Well, when you talk about an engine, I think a character engine is about an unsolvable conflict. And I think that that unsolvable conflict is what makes it a TV show and not a movie. Because a movie has a conflict that is solved in two hours. Right. That's why I always talk about Walter White basically being the perfect engine. Every time he succeeds, he makes his problems worse. Right. And I mean, but I think that it's like... But isn't his isn't his problem solvable? He, he, yeah, that I mean, his problem was never getting the money. Sure. It's about having an insolvable conflict like with yourself, like internally and externally, I think is sort of the, the thing that you're looking for. Um, is it in a feature you end up changed by the end and in a TV show you don't end up changed by the end of the pilot? I mean, well, definitely not by the end of the pilot. I mean, I think arguably you'd say by the end of the series, maybe they would change. But sometimes, no. I mean, look at the greatest characters there are. I mean, I mean, if you look at, like, Tony Soprano, like, is he any different? Uh, is Walter White any different at the end? He maybe is a little more self-aware. I mean, I think the same for, like, Don Draper. I don't know that he's... Better at the end. Different. Yeah. I think yeah. he. I think he's more evolved. I think he under, he's accepting himself. In a way that I think so that actually, I mean, now that I think about it, I think that makes him very different than he is at the beginning of the series. He kind of lets go, yeah, of like his Did you guys ever watch Review? Have you seen Review, Carrie? Oh, the Andy Daly show? Andy Daly show. Not really, but I love Andy Daly. You do yourself a favor and watch that show. It is incredible. But the series finale, he basically his flaw is that he believes that the work that he does reviewing life experiences is so valuable that he's willing to sacrifice everything, like his marriage, you know, uh, his health, everything, to uh, to do this work. And he is given the cleanest out ever at the end of the series. And, like, 
just goes right back into it. <laughs> like, it uh, it's incredible. So anyway, that just reminded me of that. You should watch Andy Daly's The Best. I think it was already an unpaid endorsement once upon a time. Yeah, it's also yeah. pretty short. Anyway, let's uh, let's go back a little bit, actually. because So you said that you had worked in features for a while and then moved to AMC. Can you tell us a little bit about what specifically you're working on and doing in the last seven years, basically? Yeah, um, what does a development person do? Well, uh, I mean, AMC in particular does uh, current and development together. So that means that I look for, I hear pitches, I read scripts, I look for books to, to option or podcasts or... Speaking of, is this for sale? Um, yeah, well, um, there's a bidding war. <laughs> my mom loves it. This podcast. Yeah. Uh, my mom, I already told her told her about it, and she will be listening. Okay. Hi, mom. Hi. Oh, cool. Uh, and she will also love that I talked about her. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So you could option uh, articles, whatever, and meeting with writers and developing ideas with them, and then you. Uh, you know, you work on the scripts with them, and then you ultimately get them ready to be considered. And then you are a part of the conversation to decide what scripts you pick up to series. And then you uh, help hire writers, you hire, um, you give notes on the scripts, you hire the directors, you hire, like, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. oversee casting and all those things. And then, uh, and then... And are you on set? Um, just a little bit, you know, just right at the beginning. And if everything's going well, then not that much after that. But if things are not going well, uh, then sometimes there needs to be a reason for you to be around. Um, but that's usually only if there's something if that's there's... like not working. And so when you said you that AMC does both development and current at the same time, yes. you mean that you are the, the executive soup to nuts for the entire series? Basically, yes, yes. Which and is so, unique, right? No, uh, I'd say most places are both. Some places, uh, basically, there's a development executives that work on something all the way until the pilot is complete, and then they hand it hand off it to up. a current executive who does it the rest of the life of the series. And that just, you know, is because it's a current is a very time-consuming job. So sometimes some networks have chosen to have those jobs be separate. Mm-hmm. They also seem like very different type of jobs, right? Current is like about knowing this show and how it works, right? The new development seems to be more about like, like, like you need to be sold on a, a new show that you've never seen before and think that you can sell it to other people as opposed to a show that already ex- exists, I guess. I don't know. It just seems like a different part of your brain that you're exercising, you know? Um, I think that shows that maybe aren't as... I could see what you're saying is if a show was like a procedural or there was like a certain formula to the way that the show mm-hmm. was made. So, you know, getting in the ones that are going to go eight, nine, ten seasons, I can like see what you're saying, but... A show, a show that's maybe um, has a lot has a little bit more. I don't know. Uh, every variation. season is something special. I think it's hard. It, you do still develop those seasons. It's mm-hmm. not you don't. Um, you're, you're still kind of contributing creatively, and so the people that worked on it from the beginning, partially because of the relationship that you would have with the creatives involved, makes the everything go more smoothly. And also, you have a better understanding of the material going forward so you would stay with the show it's the same i mean right. it's a different I, yeah. I didn't mean i didn't mean that it wasn't creative i meant that your new shows are like a gamble a little bit and a show that's greenlit you're all you care about is making this show good right yeah you're making that show good but it's still a gamble because who knows if it's going to work and then every season you do it's like who knows if it's going to continue to work so well and your point of like each season being something special we're in a new era where it's not like 
you set up an NCIS and it's like, well, there's a dead body at the beginning of every episode or whatever. I right. assume I don't know what NCIS is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there is a body on that one. I have no idea. Law and order. I don't watch procedures. But you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah. you know, everyone's at the bar at the beginning of Cheers. But now that things change and shift and evolve and each season does have its own big bad and sometimes even different locations and all of that stuff. It, right. it, it's a different deal. Also, I remember Comedy Central, I think originally when I was there, they would hand off after the pilot. And then when Kent came in, they all, they started doing it where like basically every executive was soup to nuts. So you would carry over. Um, and I think from a talent perspective, people like it better too. Because like now... Carrie's the person that found our show. We worked with her together, and like we get to keep making it with her rather than like you being like, "Well, good job, everyone. Now you're going to series," and then you got have someone new who's more. They tend to be a little more like nuts and bolts, like a little more closer to a line producer, not literally, but like there's a uh, there was a different mentality, I think, to those people. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that shift is happening everywhere i think that's i mean it's just a it's just a question of like volume like how much you can handle Mm -hmm. like each person the amount of hours in the day to be able to sure find new things and also work on the things you're currently working on so that's a great question then in general how many shows are people kind of like trying to juggle at any given time how many shows can you can one person handle that are both on the air and then also developing out of slate how does that work every every network is different um i think that we're probably a little bit more curated i Mm -hmm. think that each person is probably working on two or three current shows and developing in different stages probably 25 projects Mm -hmm. which is a lot yeah it's a lot it is a lot but some places maybe that are higher volume uh i've heard of develop i don't work at any of those places but i've heard of development executives being on like 10 shows or something like that, which is a lot of time. And then so you're not necessarily, you may not be focused on development as much as you are on like hearing a pitch that is fully baked and ready to go Mm -hmm. to series, like a couple scripts are written Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. It's further down the line. Right. Okay. So I guess I'm thinking of your job as three different things. You have the kind of maintaining the shows that, that are being shot. You have listening to pitches for new shows. And then you have finding material, like you said, podcasts or articles or um books like how much time of your week are you spending on just like finding new things i mean well there's so there's a lot of different executives at different levels so like every and everybody's kind of doing the same thing so it's a kind of an all hands on deck situation so it's like my assistant might find an article or we have like and we have different meetings during the week where we talk about somebody could have found a book and they're like, oh, you know, that would be great for this showrunner that we have an overall with, or that would be, you know, there's a lot of, it's collaborative. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the speculative piece of it is catch as catch can. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like when you, it comes across, you like do what you're, your best to, like you have different avenues. Like we have a book scout and he would like give us a list of new books that are out that we could read. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of it is just, you know, sometimes it'll be submitted by agents and sometimes it'll be things that you just find through different, mm-hmm. like it'll just come across. Like, I mean, we optioned a podcast to be developed just based on something that I just was a fan of the podcast. And I was like, oh, we could do it. This as a series and just cold emailed them. And it could be that, like, where it's just something that you're a fan of, or it could be something that's like, you know, 
it just it depends on like how much sure. how many hours you have in the day some it just kind of goes easier than others it goes into the stack basically yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah so speaking of reading like how many spec scripts do you read per week just new scripts i mean i think yeah. that uh maybe five probably new scripts and then mm-hmm. there's like the scripts for the episodes or the shows you're working on there's the scripts for the development that you're trying to get made that add up so you're probably reading maybe there's also samples for people for mm-hmm. writing like you know for a um staffing jobs so i think and just new writers that you want to meet so i think it probably adds up to probably like 20 scripts a week maybe something like that yeah. right. but it's not and sometimes it's not that many right. I mean, it just depends right. i guess i think like what's interesting is like if someone is like trying to get someone at amc to read their script yeah. like no you're that per- you're competing with for their time against these shows that already exist yeah. new shows that they're already developing like well it's I'm, hard to get your spec script read also right? Gary's been at this for a while. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not you're not the first person to read the script once it gets to your desk, right? Mm-hmm. Like your assistant has edited it or like other people are I kind wish. of you wish. <laughs> not all the time. It I depends. I mean, like everybody's yeah. kind of doing their own thing. Sure. So it's like, yes, I, but it's coming from an agent or something. There's a yeah. few filters. It's, yeah. it's not like someone's like, hey, Gary, read this, you know? Yeah, it could. Uh, I mean, I've had it come from so many different ways. You know, like there's things like there's a million ways to get things through to people. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like I'll have, I could ask somebody to read something like a junior executive to read something for me or right. re- and my assistant read something for me. Like that definitely happens. Um, sometimes I just read it, you know, it just depends on if right. I'm interested in reading it or not. <laughs> Does it come the other way around though? I guess is what I'm what getting at. Like uh, that someone has read something and said, Oh, Carrie, I think you need to read this. Oh yeah. 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 That's it's a big more part of, of that. Job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of that. I mean, I think that that's at, I mean, you work at a place long enough, you move up, and then you become the person that the person comes to to say, Right, right. Your assistant, it's a huge win for that person if they're like, you're going to like this. Yeah. 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 That's the recommend, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think anybody who wants to be a development executive, that's the kind of thing you want to be able to find. And that's like the real, like, high altitude training of Mm -hmm. a development executive is that you find something that nobody cares about, and you say it's good, and it, like, gets somewhere. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's like that's the that's your taste is kind of the only chip you have to play, and so if you yeah. can find something that's awesome and nobody told you it was awesome, like it's like you're like, oh man, we really should work with this guy, Steven Soderbergh. He's the best. <laughs> sure. And you're like, right. thanks, thank God you were here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> if you weren't here to say that, I don't know what we would have done. <laughs> but I guess like the good example is like, right? Someone reads like the Mr. Robot feature script, and they're like, this could be a TV show. Yeah. Right. And then it is. Hmm. Orin teases me all the time about like there's so much lingo of like you know we went another direction or whatever mm-hmm. like there's a there's a politeness to Hollywood sometimes that yeah. I think is it, interesting. The writing you didn't know. resonate with me. Yeah, I, I didn't, it didn't really spark for me or whatever people say. Oh yeah, know? no, there's like I feel like you could make a whole like list of development cliches. Like let's put a pin in it. Sure. Or yeah. like we're circle the wagons, <laughs> you know. Or uh, I'm trying to think of a what good does one. circle the wagons mean? Well, you know, it's like when you go and you talk to everybody else and then come back. And then, dis- like, circling wagons is just, like, discussing. Yeah, like, we can't talk about this in front of you, is what we're right. saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we're going to go let, circle the wagons on whether or not we buy this show for Or, you. like, let, let's take this offline. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'll it think of some a more. flashback, yeah. <laughs> as, as over the course of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. But circle the wagons, like, it could come back positive, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not <laughs> bad. Necess- None of them are supposed to be bad. They're all supposed to be, like, neutral to, like, get out of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. So earlier you said, uh, you know, if it's a script that you really want to read, you'll just read it. Um, like, can you give us any insight into like what makes you really want to read a script? Is it a log line? Oh, it's, and just a kind of related question is like, do you ever receive a script with like a packet, like a visual, any sort of pitch deck or anything? Sure. It doesn't, I, I'll be honest, it doesn't really mean anything. I think when people do it, it can be helpful if you're in person to show some images while you're kind of talking about what you want to do. But the, the, mo- the most important thing is the script. And if you are nobody and nobody's ever heard of you, the fact that you are able to make a presentation with like great images from other movies is sort of not relevant. The only thing that's going to matter is the script. Does it put a little bit of like a stank on it? No. No. I don't think so. But does it help sell a tone? Like, I mean, like, I don't know if a Black Mirror or like Drive or there's some there's some movies and things where like the way it's made kind of elevates it, you know, beyond the script. Yeah, I think that uh, it's all like you can't, it all goes back to the script. If you have a script, that is the effective thing. I think sometimes a good sizzle, like a (laughs) edited reel, that can be compelling and really set a tone. Images are, an I guess, sort of like an icing on the cake, I guess, but (laughs) it's not the cake. So it's like you can't, you know, and I guess it's not even, icing is maybe even too grand a word for it i think it's sort of just like it's window dressing it's not gonna push you over the edge right because i guess good writing would give you the tone you'd get the tone from that though i will say as much as like a a document that has images is not going to sell anything i do think a document that has information about the season or or what you want to say with the series or like what the intent is can be very helpful. Oh, that's interesting. So I yeah. think that that is actually something that I think does people can be, you know, can be really interesting, especially if you have a show that goes a lot of different places and you want to be able to say, mm-hmm. here's what this is going to be. Cuz right. you know, the this the pilot may just be the tip of the iceberg, so you want to give someone a taste of like where it's going, and you also that's your opportunity to really sell in prose as opposed to just selling on the page in a screenplay. So I think it's a uh, um, that's much more compelling than images. And sure, you could have like a document that has some images in it. I'm not saying like it's not going to be like oh this amateur what well, is in this. Like sure, I mean, sure. people do it all the time. I'm just saying it's like I, never in my life have I been like this script's okay, but man, the lookbook boy <laughs> really. Uh, I just also sold like me. Blade, Run- Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess I uh, think yeah. What's that? Oh, the OA. Do you remember that show? Yeah. Sure. I feel yeah. like that's a show that probably came in with like a lookbook you know like yeah i mean no they all do i'm just saying it doesn't really and i think it's like look if you have a director attached to your material and they come in they should have a lookbook they should be saying what they think Mm -hmm. it should look like they should have a strong point of view about the tone and the look of the show and what if it's it's a writer director they should same thing sure if they're coming in to meet sure they don't have to but i guess i'm just saying it also depends on like it depends on the context. Right, right. I think it's like if you are nobody and you're just trying to get somebody to care about your story and you send in an email from an agent, the script and the lookbook, I don't need to look at the lookbook. But if I read the script and I liked it enough to meet, then you can show me the lookbook. Because you're, right. you're, you're talking about the series and you're like, this is how I want it to feel. This is the thing, whatever. But it's like actually just sitting on the page. It's like, it's like the, the, the script is the gate. I'm not even going to, why even look at the lookbook if I right. 
don't but but a format document like or a document that like has like a little bit of a window into what the series is I would definitely look at because I want to know what the intent is of the creator especially if it's something that like is again just a window into where it's going to go and it's if it's not as traditional then you may like episode one of a certain show like you don't even know where it could go you know what I mean so you want to kind of know that that's so interesting what about like a proof of concept like if someone sent like a we filmed like the cold open or a trailer or something. Yeah, I mean, I think film is is uh, can be really compelling if if it's good. Do you know what I mean? Or it can be an issue if it's just okay. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's like kind of like you don't want to send it unless you know it's an A plus because then you you because there's right. it's, it's but so that's much. Also true for the script. Sure, right? but it. I mean, but it's much easier mm-hmm. to sell a product a promise than a product. Mm-hmm. So like if you just have a script where anybody can picture how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Then that's one thing. And who's going to be in it and, yep. and, and how much it's going to cost. So, but if you shoot something and it's yeah. awesome, sure. But you have to really be hard on yourself when you make something. And just because just you made it doesn't mean people should see it. That's, like I think. Yeah. So it's like it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to decide. But I think it's just the truth. Like, I mean, I think that's like why agents and managers can, why uh, one of the reasons they have a job is because they're the ones that's supposed to have the hard conversation with the client and say, mm-hmm. I don't, I think this is strategically, I think we should just send the script. And it's not against the person. It's just more like if you didn't have the resources that you would have if you actually like had the money to really make it the way you wanted, you know. Right. It's but so it, interesting because I feel like a lot of times, I mean, maybe I'm just giving bad advice, but I say that it's like really hard to get people to read your script. And sometimes, you know, like we get people send us scripts all the time. I mean, as like directors or even as like podcast hosts, they're like, hey, I worked on this project. Here's a script. And if I see like a 60 page PDF, like I'm probably never going to read it. But if they send it with like a short film or like mm-hmm. a lookbook, I'll probably flip through it because it takes like 10 seconds, you know, or I'll watch the first the short film. And if the first right. scene is horrible, I'll probably stop. But I'll I'll give that more of a chance to grab my attention than sitting down and reading the script. Sure. But you wouldn't buy it. Right. Well, right. so that, so we're talking about right. two different things. Because if you you are trying to get an agent or a manager having more content that shows the versatility of you as a filmmaker or a artist, can be very helpful. But I'm just saying to you, as somebody who's going to buy a piece of material, it just doesn't matter if that thing is good. The only material is the script. Yeah, is what you're saying. That's yeah. it. That's, that's the most important that's thing. You can yeah. have the other stuff and can be helpful. I'm just saying it's just not really. Like, right. I guess if I'm the script saying, isn't good, it's not good. Yeah. What, yeah. And again, maybe this is because you're kind of like in a higher level and people are vetting a lot of projects before you're seeing them. But oh, like, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I, but I guess I'm just saying. That is actually when, when I quit, I was like, oh, well, I've read a lot of garbage. So I know I can do better than that. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm just saying like if the log line is is a little lackluster like can something other than just the script get you to read the script I mean obviously if there's a list attachments or something well that I think helps. I think that that's where the um the log line does come in I think it's there's so many levels of like what we're talking about of how to get noticed or like at different places so I think that like if I was a writer and I was just starting out and I was like if I'm giving somebody advice who's like a new screenwriter, I would write a sample with a really crazy hook. And so that if someone said the log line to you, then you'd be like, what? And you'd actually read it. Basically, and it's like writing. Don't worry about it getting made or anything like nope. that, right? It's, yeah, like, it's, it's like, like it's like a blacklist script. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which are all kind of like, 
it's kind Bonkers. of become a you know yeah, right. sure. the log line is the right is the that's script. like that's sort of where it's gone uh, i mean i mean i don't read them anymore but i mean before when i used to that 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 was a big thing but i think it's like it's compelling when somebody says oh it's this they give you this great hook you know what i mean mm-hmm. and uh um can you tell us related to that how important is it for like the first five pages to grab you or any of that stuff? I think it's important. I mean, I think you need to show your voice like and and, and come in. And I don't know that it, it doesn't mean that it has to be like big. It just has to have a point of view. It has to be strong in like what it's saying. And I think that like readability is really important, um, especially when you're trying to get noticed as a as like a staff writer, like as a young writer is is sort of like if you read like a good writer's script, it's like a pleasure to read. And the way mm-hmm. that they write the action description is a subliminal message for what the tone of the piece is. You know what I mean? Like they write it in a certain, they don't overwrite it. It's not mm-hmm. too much action mm-hmm. description, but what they do economically sends a message about the kind of show that it is and like what it, they've, they're, they're very like deliberate in what, how they're saying the way a character is doing a certain thing. Like that, I think that the best scripts do that. Mm-hmm. And they're, those are the ones that are a pleasure to read. And I think the dialogue is important and sort of like the way that you hook someone in in the same way that you would think about for a pilot, the way you'd hook someone in if you just watched the show. If you saw a really compelling teaser, you'd probably watch the whole episode. It's the same thing if you're reading it. I mean, but I'm, you know, I'm not just going to stop reading after the first five pages. I'll give it a chance. I'm just saying like, it is helpful to think of a compelling teaser. But I think if you're just trying to get noticed, you're trying to get representation, if you're trying to get staffed when you're young, it is like, or just starting out, mm-hmm. having a unique, weird sample can be very effective. Right. It's helpful to front load things. Yeah. Right. Like be but, interesting. But right. She's also saying back. like loud, weird, in your face, like, like bigger fresh than and original. Like saying like, oh, I just made Breaking Bad, but it's with a woman is like not uh, interesting. Right. Right. As opposed to I built a time machine to go get sure. Richard Nixon to do this thing, whatever. Yeah. Right. But it could also be very specific to who you are as a person. Right. I think that's the other thing that's really important is that especially in television is is uh, is if somebody if you write a extremely authentic story that somebody would uh, mm-hmm. read. Can you give like, us an example? I mean, it could just be like someone's like personal, personal story. Like not as, like I mean, like I think like if they grew up in a really specific environment mm-hmm. that they wrote about, like if they wrote about their family. Like we work with a lot of playwrights, and a lot of people's plays are about their own personal life. And like, like there's a you know, like there's writers that they they just write it about their family, and they like, and it just feels so real. That you're like this person has like an ear for dialogue, or they like they they're perceptive in this way where you feel like they're going to be like because when you're making a writers room, you're making like a baseball team. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so that I think that that can be it's it's like a just you're 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 putting your stamp on like this is the kind of writer that I am. This is how I sound. This is my style. You know what I mean? Like I think that that that's kind of what you're coming in with at first. And that could be, I mean, it could be a lot of different things. If you're Shane Black or something, you're, that's a certain kind of writing that, but it's very, it's very bold. You like read the first five pages and you're like, I get this. I get Mm -hmm. who this guy is. But that's not the same way that like, like the script for girls for like Lena Dunham, that was like very specific to her experience and like more authentic and like what she wanted to say. But it was like totally different kind of vibe, but they both are valid in their own way. I feel like though, like 
at least girls is still kind of like it, this universal message still relatable, even though it's like hyper specific to like her experience. Cause I feel like a lot of times we get even people send us like we made a web series and it's like about some diverse group of people in some town that you've never seen that story, but you look at the, the plot and it's like pretty much the same kind of drama. Like it doesn't feel fresh aside from the casting, you know, yeah, or the location. I, I want to shift a little bit actually, or maybe follow up with something you were saying before Carrie, you were saying like there's a handful of different things that we're talking about here. Right. And you kind of focused in on like, if you're a brand new writer, how to get noticed. Right. Are you looking for that for baby writers or are you kind of like working with people who are a little bit more established? Um, I think, uh, it doesn't matter as yeah. long as the script's good. I mean, I think Lodge 49, which is a show that's on AMC that that's a short story writer. That's the first I'm, I don't want to, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure it's one of the first pilots he had ever written, if not the first. I guess what I'm, I'm really sure. asking. I don't want to, sure. I'm sorry if I, if we I'm give a lot of that. wrong facts on this podcast. <laughs> don't worry. I mean, it, it didn't read like it was the first thing he ever wrote. It was very good. It, we made it's, it. It's great. Um, what I'm getting at is, uh, you were saying, okay, well, if you want to be, you know, if you want to get noticed first thing, if you're young, this is what you do. Have you noticed what, what are people doing after they've, you know, been a staff writer and they're coming in or like, what's the difference between trying to get noticed first thing and maybe like having been around a little bit? I think like what Matt is asking is like, how does Matt get noticed? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, but I'm saying like you were saying, well, there's a couple different things when we talked about one of those things. Let's talk about the other one. I think that getting I know when it comes to staffing shows, I think what people really respond to is, again, having a strong point of view about the material that you want to, of the show you want to work on. And in some cases, um, uh, a show that we have uh, called The Terror, that's a, this second season takes place during a Japanese internment. And uh, there's a writer, the staff writer um, had a PhD in Japanese folklore. Mm -hmm. And he had been a writer's assistant on a bunch of shows, but like, He's he, like, this is my time. No, he was, and and also I will say that he Thank had. God you, he got the job, huh? Yeah, he, he did. Um, and uh, but I will say he also had really strong recommendations from showrunners that he had worked with that were uh -huh. like, this guy is the guy. Yeah, and like so Great. he that was uh, um, that helped him kind of. I'm so glad he got that job. Me too. He's great. <laughs> Good. Um, but the uh, I think, uh, so I think strong at having a strong point of view about material and like being able to be versatile. Um, well, it just depends. I mean, I think that like you, you do have to be able to being a, a writer on a staff. It's like, it is more like a job, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Because you are, have to deal with, you know, a community of like other writers and, and there's politics and right. figuring out where your role is and, right. and that, those kinds of things. And then I think that getting that experience on staff because the writer is in charge ultimately in television, being a good writer and being experienced together mm -hmm. is is can be very valuable to mm -hmm. you. Right, so, that's the next step, really, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's right. like getting yeah. that experience, yeah. and then I think also because getting the experience makes you a better writer, but it also makes you a better producer, which is ultimately the job that you're going to have to do as a showrunner. Right. But in the case of something like Lodge Forty Nine, we had Jim Gavin who created that show, and that he didn't have television experience, so he was paired with Peter Ako, a showrunner. And they, they worked on the show together. Yeah. That yeah, makes sense. I think, um, I mean, we talked a ton about writing, but I guess the other thing that's really interesting is like, how do you hire directors? Like what, a, like, what do you look for in that? 
It you know it episodic directing or for pilots or episodic. Ooh, let's let's go both. We'll, we'll let's start with pilots actually. I mean, pilots. I think it's the same thing you'd look for in features. It's like you're looking for somebody with a point of view that they have. They're a storyteller and they have a point of view of how to use the camera to help tell the story. And how do you determine that? What are you looking at? I mean, I think there's a lookbook. Here, here comes our lookbook. It's there, yes. usually there is a lookbook. I got some lookbooks. Yeah, for you, yeah. Uh, so I mean, I think that like having a, a specific point of view and a take as to like how the show would look, I think is uh, important. I think that there's more of a collaborative partnership at, for pilot directors. Um, I mean, I think AMC is maybe more of a traditional TV network where we do that is a collaborative situation. I think maybe again in, in certain premium situations. The sometimes the filmmaker is sort of taking over, or in some cases, but that's not necessarily true in the way that we've traditionally done it. Um, if you have like someone that's directed a lot of comedy stuff, but they have like a really great pitch on like a dramatic series, would you consider them? Like, how how much is their previous work playing into? I think it matters. I mean, it it's but it's more like can they do it? Like it's like it's somebody like a guy like Hiro Mirai doing. Atlanta technically that's a half hour but like we would have given that guy give that guy any drama you know what I mean because of the work that he's doing is so cinematic on a half hour that it just it kind of does translate um but somebody who's maybe done more traditional half hour work that has less cinema kind of associated with it and is more about the kind of comedic timing Mm -hmm. and the you know kind of like closed sets or whatever like that's going to be harder um to give the person that opportunity so their past work has like a huge it is probably a bigger indicator than even their pitch and their lookbook and yes i mean well they probably wouldn't we probably wouldn't meet with them yeah i mean we wouldn't go i mean we wouldn't go out to them in the first place and if that's the case because we're looking for people that we feel like could make it happen right do you ever have like open directing assignments not really because we're kind of only doing we're making so few, you know, we only make a certain amount of shows a year. And so, and usually the showrunner has a really strong opinion about the kind of director that they want. So they, you know, kind of dictate the process. Let's right. actually, let's take a step back because um, how many directors do, do you even meet with on a pilot? Like three, mm. give or take? It depends. It can yeah. be more. Yeah. But like, I imagine if the three are great, then you stop there. But if right. they're sure, not sure. great, you'd keep going. But no more than, say, 10, right? No. Yeah, right. definitely yeah. not. But obviously there's way more than 10 great directors uh, that do hour-long, you know, shows, right? So wh- how, do you, how do you even get that list? Where does that get whittled down from? Tell us about that process a little bit before um, you get to the meeting stage. I mean, I think it's just about working with the showrunner to determine the look of what they want the show to be. And then we put together a list of people that are available. So when you say put together a list because you've met with those people, because you're aware of their work, because agencies sent you all. the people they liked, all of the all above. All the above. Because yeah. they had a movie at Sundance that did yeah, well. all the above. So if you're a director that wants to be on Carrie's list, you have to be at an agency and have a movie at Sundance. That's nah, what I'm I getting. Mean, no, I'm, I'm, teasing. I'm teasing, but I guess what I'm saying is, is like, this is the stuff that the show is about, right? Like, yeah, you go from everybody to less than ten people. That in between is the question mark for me. Well, I mean, I think it's like a lot of his availability mm-hmm. um, experience. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that if it's a big show, you can't give it to somebody who hasn't 
done something that's that big before, sure. then you get people start getting nervous. You know what sure. I mean? You need it to be somebody who has experience to right. a degree. Um, but it's somebody I think that has a, a it, it isn't an exact science. I think that that's the mm-hmm. maddening thing about working in the entertainment business is like there's no map mm-hmm. to, to how you get. And so much of it is exactly what you think. It's like timing and opportunity and you never know how those things are going to come about. Right. Yeah, and, I mean, I think we've had quite a few directors on that have directed pilots. And I feel like it's like a Sarah Dina Smith or... Um, sure, yeah. Uh, Augustine Frizzell. She did like an HBO pilot. Off, she did one feature at Sundance and it totally mm-hmm. just happened to hit the exact right thing they were looking for for that. Yeah, pilot. I mean, I think that if you're like the one, if you made one feature and it is exactly the vibe that you need for the pilot, sure. yes, you could do it. Sure. But it's like, it just, you, you're kind of just... Uh, Again, you just, it just, it's all opportunity, you know? Right. But there's nothing like, I think everyone we've talked to, there's nothing like, not, not one of those people, like a Paul Briganti or Matt Pollock or any of them, like, have like said, like, I'm going to, I'm aiming for that list. They're all mm-hmm. like, I'm going to make stuff. And hopefully, you know, if people, if it resonates with people, hopefully they'll add me to their list. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, right. I think agents do suggest people, they know that what's available and they will suggest right. their clients for, Right for the material because I mean we can't know about everybody. Of course, yeah. So the show gets picked up. You guys are going for it now. You need a handful of directors. What happens then for for series for series yeah. episodic? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that depends on the show. I think that if a show is big and complex and lots going on, more likely to work with uh, or feel more comfortable with directors with more experience. I think shows that are smaller, mm-hmm. more contained, um, then you have an opportunity to take more risks and try out new people. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean... More episodes too, right? You know, like I'm always... Season six of like a network sitcom. It's like, oh yeah, the um, line producer directed an episode on that one, you know? Right. So it's like, yeah, again, a first season show, you're still figuring sure. it out. And so you're booking people when you haven't shot a frame. Right. So you don't know how it's going yet. Right. So right. then you're like you're sort of thinking like we've made this huge investment. Mm-hmm. Do but, we want someone who's like a steady hand to do this, you sure. know? And also that line producer on season six probably knows that show knows better show than most people sure. exactly. in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's like, Hey, I'm going to quit unless you give me an episode. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, we've seen a, a shift from um, multiple directors in a season to oftentimes like a show just having a single director throughout the entire time. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think it's a post issue most of the time. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a exciting thing to have someone do all the episodes, but that means that you can't start editing it until after they're done shooting, which means that then your post schedule is like right. way longer because it's going way after the thing's done shooting. And so that can affect if your show is supposed to be on the air at a certain time, mm-hmm. that pushes your air date and it also makes the post longer. So that's more expensive. Um, so I think that. Awesome. I'm sold on it. I want more directors on this series. So I think that that can be, I think that's a a luxury that I think more traditional television networks like don't really have. Mm -hmm. Um, But some cable networks I feel like are doing that more, right? Like I feel like FX will do that all the time and always drives me nuts, right? Like Baskets, isn't that one guy? Yeah, I mean, I think that they'll figure out a way to do it. I mean, it happens. Yeah. I think that uh, hour long's harder. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So the easiest way into TV is get a PhD in Japanese folklore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I feel like I've run into a lot of people recently that have been 
like writing their whole lives, but then have shifted a little bit into screenwriting or entertainment later in their careers. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, I was a novelist or a playwright or something like that. And then I think there is something seductive about discovering the new awesome voice, the exciting voice that hasn't been in television or film at all, but also with a lifetime of experience and craft and like, they're still storytellers and it, um, they're confident and command. They have a lot of command. They're great at their job. They're just, it's a new form for them. And so it's like, they get the best of both worlds and I'm Mm -hmm. very jealous. Yeah. I think you just, I should go write a book. Well, I mean, look (laughs) that, that you're not wrong. I mean, that can be, it's always helpful to like have proven yourself in a different field. Sure. Um, but there's also like a ton of lawyers that end up as writers. Sure. And they're good. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. I think that happens a lot. Yeah. Just like be smart and like live life a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And be yeah. De- I feel like lawyers and writers are both like very detail oriented. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when you read a script, like you said, from someone that's not detail oriented, it's like annoying. And yeah. you realize, wait, being a lawyer sucks. I need to f- do something else that's very lucrative. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like in in conclusion, <laughs> there's <laughs> Uh, not to plug our podcast too much, but like, seems like kind of the way to success in TV as a filmmaker or a creative person outside of the studio is, um, or outside of the company is you make you stuff, make you know, stuff. write yeah. stuff, either write stuff and show it to people and pitch it until it's good enough to get bought or create, you know, make movies or whatever, shoot stuff until enough people notice it to put them put you on their list oh my god totally i mean i think that just shoot it concept is awesome i i mean i know i was kind of like poo-pooing the like you know lookbook or whatever but if you like there's definitely writers i mean just recently there was a short that someone had made that was really great that um my uh co-worker had seen and showed to me and was like we should staff this person on this room like this short is awesome mm-hmm. and like and like that's how she found it was the short and she like went and found who represented him and was like really into it and like just based on seeing the short was just like this is great and like this person's perfect for the show and like that I think that that does totally work I think that like the sort of presentation or trying to do the little bit of your total big idea that maybe you didn't have the money to really do the way you wanted, <laughs> then then you get into trouble. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I think, you know, if you could figure out a way to do it, like you look at like the short for like George Washington or whatever, mm-hmm. or like right, right. Boys in the Hood, that was the start right. as a short or... Like Whiplash. Or, yeah, Whiplash. Like, you know, there's so many, if you can get the, the funding right. for it, you can really impress somebody and it can just like skyrocket right like the, right. your your opportunities so i do think a, a like a, a good short is uh can can really do something help you out yeah. but i have my own opinions about what makes a good short sure Ooh. can you just give us three bullet points real quick i think it's just the one the one piece of advice i would give is it needs to be a completed thought you have to say something you mm-hmm. have to complete the short and say oh okay that's what you were saying i think a lot of times it doesn't it's just, fizzle out a little bit. Yeah, yeah fizzle out or, or just sort of don't say something that's like that profound. Like you're just kind of like shrug right. at mm-hmm. the end of it. Or it's and like it, a slice of life, right? Yeah. Like it's like you want to say something. I think that that can work. The slice of life can work if you really put the money into the look mm-hmm. and you're that's more what you're sh- selling. But I know for me personally, I'm looking for somebody where I'm like, 
wow, like this is, you said something and this felt emotional. I think, well, like the Whiplash short, I I saw that short because sure. my friend produced it and I was like, I remember like the, she, we did like a, there was like a screening at the Soho house or something and we like went and saw it. I like saw that and I like cried. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, this is like, it, it really just was like, and I think that was sort of a, a representation of like this person's ability to convey emotion in a scene. And it was, that's a big risk to take that like, cause that is less a completed thought and more of a just like, mm-hmm. just like a spear into your gut. And he nailed it. What happens in the short? I've never seen it. It's the scene. Yeah, it's just the not my tempo scene, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, that's a good scene. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think that 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 goes against my like uh, my advice. No, but it does give you it It, gives you an engine. It gives you point of view. It gives you obviously there's visual and it's musical. You know, and it's more complete than than it could be. Like oftentimes it's like oh we just shot a scene from the movie. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't feel like it's. Yeah, we went to this festival where Chrissy's movie played. Remember, um, I forget what it was called, but there was this one short about this couple that lived in like Afghanistan or Iran or something. And they were yeah, like yeah. under, there was some civil war and they had to be yeah. like hiding out in their apartment. Yeah. And it was real. I mean, it was in Arabic and stuff. And they were hiding and people were shooting and it looked good. It felt real. But that's all they did. They were just hiding out all night. And I was like, where are we going with this? Like, I yeah. love the authenticity, but it's nothing. It's like, you know, them a couple and there are a couple issues hiding out while you know there's terrorists outside yeah yeah again just kind of slice slice life with but without anything um the thing i wanted to go back to though the thing i love about the shorts in shorts in general and kind of what i realized now i was getting at with the like what do you literally do when you make a list question is i think that it always kind of boils down to access mm-hmm. right and so um you know if if you don't have an agent and you you haven't met Carrie Gulogli in person, then you don't end up on that list, right? Um, but the the flip side of that is that I think there's a culture and development of being the first to find the cool new person, right? So seeing that short, like sending that around the office and being like, oh my God, this is so awesome. Let's meet this person. That's the way in. That's why just shooting it still makes sense. It totally you, makes sense. Whether you have an agent or whatever. You know what I mean? Like just because you can't hand somebody a script or or forward them an email or whatever, there's still a way to get in front of people like you. Completely. I think it's the, I mean, it's the right thing to do if you want to. That's kind of the only thing you can do, especially writing. It's like easier to do. You can do it like, I mean, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. Sure. It's really hard, but it's a. Uh, you can just do it on your laptop. You can go to the library and type. Right. Yeah. But yeah. directing, it's really like that's such a huge, it takes a, it's a lot of, you know, confidence and courage and risk sure. that goes into really doing. Naivete you, maybe even. No, I mean, well, I, mean, I think yeah, that that's, that's a, a, that's a powerful thing. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think uh, it's. It, it takes a lot of guts to do it because you got to convince a ton of people to do it with you. Um, so it's a, it's a, I, but I think it's a completely valuable thing to do and I like really respect it. And um, it's just, you know, and I think those, those things do matter, you know, and can get you representation and can get you in the right doors for sure. Um, but you just have to, I, that's why I would say, really think about what your short is Mm -hmm. like really be hard on yourself about what the concept for your short is i'd say 
think uh, like be like really litigate what is the idea that you're shooting what are you trying to say how good is the story mm-hmm. that's the thing you should be like like really thinking about well, why is this my calling card like why is this the thing that I want someone to send around people's offices and then shoot it mm-hmm. but like really think about it before you do it because it's like if you're really going to put everything sure into that you want to make sure that it's right and I'm 99% sure I know the answer to this question but if a short has like 10 million views or something does that make any difference to you not really i mean i think it's like i mean sure i guess i mean like if it's like popular sort of i guess i just don't think about it like that no the answer is no (laughs) i don't think it matters being nice no yeah i mean it's just is it good i mean that's that's the sad thing is is that like doesn't really mean anything anymore because it's like if something has a lot of views like so do a lot of Right. Just well, like, kind of like whatever things. videos. Yeah. 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 Um, Which again is great news, right? Like you, you wouldn't hold it against a, a Vimeo link that had two hundred views. No. Twenty views. You don't Not care. If it's good. Yeah. Who cares? You don't care. If anything, you're yeah. like, yeah, nobody's heard of this yeah. yet. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Like in the contrary. Yeah. yeah. Like if something yeah. has five million views, but the production values are like it's clearly viral because it's about something hyper specific, like. A Harry Potter thing or something, you know, but it's not, I guess I think yeah, a lot your, of times. Your rap video about Harry Potter yeah. doesn't, hey, doesn't matter. I have yeah. a pretty good, <laughs> straight out of Hogwarts. I actually would love have you ever seen that? about Harry Potter. Yeah, Gary would love that. Uh, check, yeah. I, have, I have one. It's got about 2 million views. Uh, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Gary. We could talk for another five hours, but um, I think we should probably hop into endorsements. Let's do it. Unpaid endorsements. Unpaid endorsements. <laughs> Um, Charles is the person who sings our unpaid endorsements theme. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because I know my, my unpaid endorsement is Light the Fuse. Light the Fuse, the Mission Impossible podcast that is hosted by two of our friends, Charles and Drew. The reason why I love it so much is that they really know what they're talking about. Without and yeah. they get, and they really care. and But they're also like huge fans and they like love it so much. Yeah. And so... And, and they're also really funny. And so I think that that's why the interviews that they do are so good because they the questions they ask are so specific, but they have the, through the lens of someone who's like a big fan of the, mm-hmm. the stuff and they're, they're not really concerned about impressing the person. They're right. more just concerned with like the kind of things a fan would ask, but like an extremely informed fan because they both, you know, love movies, right. but also work in the business. And so it's like, I find the interviews to be like really compelling. And like, I also think they've gotten some really great people and continue and think, to get great people. I think that's why that I think that's why how they get those great people is like you. It's not just a fanboy podcast. It's like, oh, no, these guys know exactly what they're talking about. Oftentimes, like on the Ellswood interview, like they definitely remembered things way more than he did. Oh, no, but it was great. But and he was such what a great interview. Robert. So good. Yeah. Great. What's great. the podcast about? It's about Mission Impossible. It's about all of the... 100%. All Mission Impossible. And it's about all the movies and they do all these different things. But they've kind of started... The domino effect has begun. So it's getting better and better because they got, you know, like the composer from one of the movies. And then editor. And then they ended up getting Chris McQuarrie. And then they got Robert Ellswit. And then they have some more that I don't want to spoil. They have some good ones coming down the pike that I heard about. Like, can't put it standing on mic. But like, I'm pretty excited about it. But the thing is, is I feel like so many movie podcasts, the people are so they're trying to impress the person they're interviewing or they're trying to sound smart in this way that is just distracting and annoying and i think that or they're just not funny or or entertaining Mm -hmm. as a as an interviewer and like look i'm biased because i'm friends with them but i think that they're like really good interviewers like to the point where at when i was coming over here thinking about what i was going to say in this thing i was like they should do all of this and then they should pick another movie series and do it 
with something else that they love, like do do another like deep deep dive. They should like yeah. make a deep dive podcast because it's like I'm like loving every minute of it. It's great. It's tricky though because you know you have to. I think part of what's beautiful about that podcast is that like it started when they were kind of nascently becoming falling in love with film. Do you know what I mean? So like that first mission movie came out in 96, mm. 97. So I think like there's something beautiful about it tracking basically from adolescence into uh, adulthood. Do you know sure. what I mean? That that would be hard to replicate. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I guess I just like want them to do more. Sure. Yeah. They have stretched seven movies and a TV series into uh, 40, 50 episodes of a podcast. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. lot. It's, it's, have it's, they seen the whole TV show, the yeah. series and everything? Yeah. They know so, everything yeah. about. It. They do. They yeah, do. Yeah. They also have one that's all about like the movies that never got made, like that, like like Oliver Stone was attached to direct Mission mm-hmm. Impossible two at one point. So there's lots of like really good, uh, like they like quote a lot of like Entertainment Weekly articles from like 1994. <laughs> it's like pretty good. <laughs> but but just off the cuff, like they've truly internalized it in a way that's very charming. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think they both have that head for data like that. You know, in a way that's uh, impressive. Yeah. Light the fuse. Good one. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I've got two, actually. One regular one and then a bonus one that, Orin, I think you're going to be excited about. So my first one is a music video that I have watched, I don't know how many, like five or six times. It's super simple for a song called Fading by um, Abel Farben and Ilaria. I don't know. I don't know how to say their names. The links will be in the show notes. They're like a DJ and pop act. I don't like listen to their music at all. Um, but I have a friend who was in the video, so I checked it out because it was like going super viral. And it's basically just your standard kind of like medium budget music video of like cool outfits and like a few models on like a pink psych, like and some fun prop props and they're posing. Um, but then the twist is that this guy, my friend Dave. Uh, is this like incredible dancer who kind of just looks like a like a normal goofy kind of guy? He's got like a gnarly goatee and he's like a little heavy, and he keeps trying to sneak into the video and just does silly dances. And it's the cleanest, stupid music video, and it is so charming to me. And so they end up in this weird. He and the pop star have this crazy duel um, where they're just kind of dancing, and he's trying to like steal the spotlight. So simple, so elegant. It, I've watched it like five or six times in a row. It's like so funny and and truly performance based on both ends. Like Dave is so incredible at like kind of stealing the spotlight, and the singer is like really good at kind of being annoyed with him without overselling it. So I thought, uh, what a wonderful um, little music video. So uh, we'll have sh- links to the show notes. Maybe you guys have probably heard of this very famous person who I can't pronounce their name of. But the more important one, uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Imaginary Worlds, and there's an important new episode called uh, The Power of the Makeover Mage, and it is guest hosted by our one and only Jay McAuliffe, our editor. Oh, really? Yeah. It was like such a delight. I was like literally like freaking out. Just by um, coincidence? Just by coincidence. So it's one of my favorite shows, and Jay has been cutting the show for a couple years now. Cutting our show. Cutting our show, and... um, she does a great episode. So Imaginary Worlds in general is just about like geek and nerd culture. It's kind of like the best conversation uh, and deep dive on like the minutia of fantasy worlds, basically. Um, and they do a really interesting episode about the nature of video games and identity, basically. And mm-hmm. like Jay and a number of other people kind of 
experimenting with their own identities in building an avatar, basically. It was really awesome. So way to go, Jay. Thanks. That's cool. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, just real quick, my favorite podcast by far over the last like two months is the New York Times, the daily podcast. It comes out every single day, every single work day. I guess it took President's Day off. But uh, it's literally, it's hosted by this guy named Michael Barbaro, and it's literally what happened yesterday in America. <laughs> um, and it's just like the best, it's like New York Times level reporting uh and it's just so good. It's like produced like any NPR podcast would mm. be. Uh, there's like music and editing and all that stuff. Um, but they like, like, I don't know if you remember like a week and a half ago, like Donald Trump sat down with the publisher of the New York Times. Uh, and they were like the daily is like who like kind of put that like report together. And it, I don't know, every single day it's like fascinating. They'll talk about the border. They'll talk about uh, the one I heard today was about like the Democratic party how there is splitting on israel you know mm-hmm. like um it, i don't know it's just so good and it's so in-depth and it seems like pretty balanced to me but i'm kind of biased but anyway daily it's my favorite podcast and then another thing just like a weird tip that probably most people know but we were <clears throat> i was shooting at venice boardwalk this uh past week and we wanted to do shots of people riding their bikes and we didn't really have a good way to like move the camera with them and you know kind of conservative budget and we only had a couple hours but we rented like a pedicab do you know what that is sure like the bicycle guy that that tows like a place that two people can sit and it was like an amazing camera car for like a non-street that's really good uh so i'll post some photos uh but it was just like I was like, oh, this, I don't know why we don't use these pedicabs all the time. I mean, it. there is like some stamina required <laughs> from the person that's pulling the sure. pedicab. Uh, you and some Anton Bauer ba- powered Yeah, and also monitors. uphill, like you feel the pedals, <laughs> yeah, like great. the movement isn't. Through. But yeah, pedicabs as camera cars, pretty, pretty good. Pretty awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, Gary, um, how can our listeners uh, keep track of what you're doing and find out more about you? Oh, do we really want that? That's <laughs> kind of a weird way I phrased it, I suppose. I but mean, if, do you have like a do you tweet? Do I you guess have... I am technically on Twitter. Um, Is the... I do I tweet occasionally, very rarely, like I'd say like three times a year. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but I'm there <laughs> at only globally. Perfect. Okay. We'll have all of that stuff up. Normally people have like, ah, my, my reel is on my website sort of stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Follow you on Twitter. <laughs> and then, and then forget that you followed me. And then I, and then three mm. times you're like, oh, oh, she's got a new show yeah. coming out. Cool. Like, oh, well, I want to personally apologize to everyone listening that I wasn't like more interesting. I don't know. No, no, I just thought it seemed mean. <laughs> no, no, you get the hard truth. The hard truth oh, is no. important though. It's real. <laughs> I promise I'm nice. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to find out uh, more hard truths, you can follow the show on justshootitpod.com or on SoundCloud Stitcher. You probably already know all of that stuff. But uh, social media, just shoot it pod, Instagram, all of that. And Instagram is getting a little bit better, which is why check it out, everybody. Uh, you can follow me at Mr. Madamo. And I'm at Smitey Pileg. Uh, this episode was produced by Madeline Rosewatt. It was edited by Jay McAuliffe. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. The music you're listening to right now is by the artist Jazar from the Free Music Archive. That's all she wrote? I think that's it. Rate us on iTunes if Um, you don't mind. (laughs) Uh, Patreon. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.